a tree, and a fine, fine tree was he. And on that tree there was a limb, and on that limb there was a branch, and on that branch there was a nest, and in that nest there was an egg, and in that egg there was a bird, and from that bird a feather came, and of that feather was a bed. And on that bed there was a girl, and on that girl there was a man, and from that man there was a sea, and from that sea there was a boy, and from that boy there was a man, and from that man there was a grave, and from that grave there grew a I Saw It on Linden Street, the show dedicated to the joy of finding an appreciation in cult films, exploitation oddities, beloved classics, and all points in between. I'm your host, Chris Roberts, inviting you to join us here at the Linden Street Cinema Experience Theater as we once again dig up a fun, cinematic relic from the past. If you're new to the show, thank you so much for joining us. This isn't your standard film review. Rather, it's a synopsis of a film that we feel deserves to have another inspection, with some background thrown in on the actors, information on the director, and hey, if I'm doing my job, perhaps you'll get a half-amusing story out of me. Fair be warned, while we don't cover all aspects of plot, we do discuss endings and spoilers. So, if you'd like to be surprised, please give this film a viewing before you listen to us. If you like us, and hey, I would hope that you do, please recommend this podcast to a friend, give us a favorable review, subscribe. This week, we are continuing our month-long theme, Tall, Dark, and Gruesome. That's our selection of some fantastic Christopher Lee features. This week, we are digging into the horror folk musical classic, 1973's The Wicker Man. Join us! This week's film is one that I saw as a sophomore in college, tipped off to its majesty by the mighty Xerxes. I ended up securing a borrowed copy, and I brought it back to my dorm room to be viewed by my roommate and fellow cinephile, and we were almost immediately at odds. You see, this was sold to him as being a classic horror film. Uh, For the record, it is. But we were both unaware that it was a musical to boot, and so while we were watching it, at least from his perspective, it was rather harsh, as he did not endure musicals very well back in the day. When we got to the end and we finished the climax of the film, which features sacrifice by a character, he was both yelling at me and yelling at the TV, angry that he had spent the last hour and 20 odd minutes on this journey. To give it a little bit of perspective, I was angry too, but I didn't hate the film. Rather, I was taken aback by the story itself, the presentation that was put on before me. And like many things, when I don't like them initially because they've confused me, 
I'll often sit down and watch them again to pinpoint exactly why I didn't like it. Yeah, I'm one of those people. But here's the thing, in this case, on the second watch of this movie, knowing that I was not going to be sitting down to take in a standard horror offering, and I could just take the movie in as it was, I found myself loving this film. I wanted to get into it even further, and from there, I would go on to buy my own copy, and then I would start to spread the word about this interesting and different movie. You want to know more about it? (laughs) Of course you do. Well, if we're going to get into the making of The Wicker Man, we need to first talk about Christopher Lee, where he was in the early 70s, and we need to really get into, at this time, a little company called British Lion. Now, British Lion was an independent studio that was known for making, well, honestly, not the greatest of features. I mean, don't get me wrong, I love a lot of stuff they put out. They made such wonderful films as uh, The Land That Time Forgot, The Man Who Fell to Earth, I, Monster. I mean, it's sort of a who's who of bad B-movies. Like, I'm, I'm all about it, and I'm on board. But in the 1970s, they had been experiencing some rather harsh times, and their future as a company was uncertain. They brought in Canadian film producer Peter Snell. They appointed him to run the company in July of 1972. He was going to come in as the new managing director, and he would go on to greenlight two very important films for them. A savage, giallo-inspired mindfuck that was Don't Look Now, starring Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie. It's an amazing film. Go see it. And before then... He would also go on to independently get greenlit this week's production himself. It was also a production that he would go on to personally independently produce. Snell himself was acquainted with both actor Christopher Lee and author Anthony Schaefer. And in the early part of 1972, the three of them had come together to discuss creating a project that they all could work on. Again, knowing what we know about Christopher Lee, at this time, he was looking for any project that could get him, quote, a better role away from what Hammer was dishing out to him. He didn't want to be Dracula. He didn't want to play Frankenstein. He wanted a film that was actually a solid story that let him act and emote. He didn't mind being a villain, but he needed at least a good script. Now, Anthony Schaefer was just a fantastic author in his day. He had already created the film Sleuth and had gotten rave reviews for it. He himself was infatuated with a 1967 novel entitled Ritual, which was written by David Pinner. And after reading it, he convinced both Lee and Snell that this was going to be the next project they should work on. They needed to pool their resources and purchase the rights to this novel and use it to create a film. There's a little bit of a problem, though. As a novel, Ritual is interesting. It's actually a... How to put it? It's a horror novel. It's a good read. It's about a devoted investigator who ventures into the Cornish countryside to search for a missing child. Along the way, though, he discovers that it's a ruse and there's really human sacrifice in his future. It's interesting, but the pacing is a little bit 
different. And translating that pacing from the page into something that's visual on the screen, it doesn't make for an exciting watch if they use how Ritual was written. Schaefer then begins discussing the project with an old friend of his, director Robin Hardy, who at the time was sidelined and recovering from experiencing a heart attack. So he comes on board, making this now a foursome, and all of these minds get together and they begin to talk about how can they reframe this story they have on the basis of ritual and reframe it, you know, spinning it as, well, we have this notion of a horror film and sacrifice, but who exactly makes a good human sacrifice? Now, a sacrifice should be probably at least on film, an arrogant, idealistic, some sort of man of law and order, as well as being able to fit into the tropes that complemented this very pagan ritualistic imagery. You know, somebody who was perfect to be set up as the king for a day character. Uh, king for the day, fool for a lifetime. One who would meet a rather violent end. And above all, this person's piety would need to be put on display. They'd also need to highlight this character's own purity, making him, of course, a steadfast virgin. All of these factors would be used to create a tale where the very man who views himself as a righteous, dogged hunter is actually going to be our story's very unaware prey. Thus, the class of old religion and modern Christianity would be the framing device, and it would be set up to be a clashing war of ethics, transposed on a remote Scottish island, known for its bountiful harvests and its cloistered community. Schaefer was able to craft a unique script around this concept, and Hardy found himself ready, willing, and able to direct. For casting, Lee was already on board, of course, to play the closest thing that this film has to a villain, Lord Samurail. Not shockingly, Lee of course wanted his old friend Peter Cushing to come on board to portray the role of the hero, Sergeant Howie, but due to prior commitments, there was no way that Cushing was going to be able to swing that. Producers had initially toyed with the concept of bringing in John Hurt, or Michael York, or David Hemmings, but all of them passed on the role. Instead, it was Edward Woodward, who at the time was fresh off of playing Agent Callan on the show of the same name for the BBC. But American audiences, you're going to recognize him as the role as the original Robert McCall, a.k.a. The Equalizer. I mean, really, kids, nowadays, you're going to jump to the Denzel Washington movies that came out in the last couple of years, or you're going to point to the reboot with Queen Latifah. But back in the day, that was some good TV for the mid to late 1980s. It was Woodward who would ultimately be cast as the devout Sergeant Howie. Lee's fellow Hammer star, Ingrid Pitt, would go on to play the island's librarian, as would his Man with a Golden Gun co-star, Britt Eklund, come on board. She was going to play Willow, the lustful innkeeper's daughter who torments Howie with her open invitations. It was on this shoot that Eklund discovered she was pregnant with her then-partner's baby, record producer Lou Adler. This would eventually necessitate body doubles to be used for her new dancing scenes while she was singing. 
To cover her Swedish accent, the recently late British-American jazz chanteuse Annie Ross of Lambert, Hendrick, and Ross fame, and later star of B-movies, doubled for Eklund's speaking voice, while her singing voice was done by singer Rachel Verney. Throw in Diane Siento, Lindsay Kemp, Geraldine Cowper, and Irene Morris, and you have a cast that is ready, willing, and able to make an iconic horror film. Budgeted at 406,600 pounds sterling, which, when you adjust for inflation, would mean that it was made for 4.6 million pounds sterling, or as my goofball associates would say, that would be almost $6.5 million in, quote, real money. The film was set to have a tight turnaround. Only 40 days of scheduled shooting over a seven-week period on location in Scotland starting in October of 1972. The problems would become apparent almost immediately as the cast was just starting out their rehearsing, and financing and scheduling reporting were getting back to British Lions money men. They quickly realized that due to the size and the scope of the script and how the scenes were already being proposed by director Hardy, they would not meet their intended budgeted goals even before they started shooting. Along the way, what was still supposed to be a horror film quickly morphed into a musical, with Hardy on the fly deciding that he wanted to have real folk music inserted into the film, both to heighten the pagan themes and, much to the cast's delight, to give them the opportunity to sing. British Lion's financial nightmare was only just starting, though. Composer Paul Giovanni and the psychedelic folk group Magnet got tough and crafted some amazing music for the film, mixing in traditional folk songs and newly composed numbers, particularly to be used around the maypole and during the seduction scenes, which gave further insight into the lives of the denizens of this special island community. The script was again overhauled, with large sections of the story being streamlined or cut outright, and in a very rushed fashion. This was all done so that the schedule could be adhered to and forced a sort of ad hoc style of shooting rather than allowing for again fully planned out approach to creating a film. It was the best they could do under the circumstances they had. That was until bad weather struck production in Scotland. This further moved the dates out and then as production rolled on it forced them to cut in new scenes, and necessitated on-the-spot rewrites. Schaefer was on hand to eliminate much of his initial stage-inspired dialogue in favor of smaller scenes that would be montaged together for expediency to try to tell the story and cut down on the script simultaneously. But all of these created additional new scenes that would need to be shot, which would further delay shooting and, again, drove up the budget. As Lee would go on to recount in the 2001 documentary, The Wicker Man Enigma, he and other cast and production members waived their pay just to get this film completed. 
Filming itself was rough as well. Scotland in the late fall doubling for spring left many of the actors battling the cold. They were wearing light summer dress in freezing temperatures. Making a tough situation even worse, actress Eklund would often argue and clash on set with director Hardy, much to actress Pitt's annoyance. When all was said and done, over 20 scripted scenes were deleted from production outright, extending the filming into the frigid November air. Post-production offered a host of different problems. Since the film was already overscheduled and was now way over budget, it caused some rather embarrassing requests for additional cash to keep coming in, which was rough going for a film that was made during a time of severe financial instability for its production company. Worse, British Lion ended up being bought by EMI Films, themselves a subsidiary of the larger music conglomerate. Peter Snell found himself fired from the production, although he was still on as an independent producer. Desperate to get further funding to complete this film, and possibly hoping to get the project some exposure, the newly appointed studio head, Michael Dealey, was left holding the bag now for EMI to try to bring the project in to completion. It would be Dealey who took a trip to the United States to try to hold a meeting with, of all people, Roger Corman, in an effort to see if he would be willing to distribute the film once it was cut and sent stateside. Corman was initially interested in the project, but he would ultimately pass on the final version. Didn't take the picture for himself, but he did enjoy the film that they screened for him, and he gave several pointers on how it could be re-edited, which was something that Dealey took to heart, further cutting scenes out of the film to make it more commercially viable. To save money, the film was going to be released as a B-movie. It was set to be a double feature with the aforementioned Don't Look Now, which put it on a double bill meant having to have the film trimmed yet again. They ended up cutting an additional 16 minutes off of the final runtime, which delivered an 86-minute feature, which would be released to audiences in January of 1974. But in the process, they lost a lot of that wonderful Christopher Lee, Ingrid Pitt, and Edward Woodward's performances. All that said, though, geez, folks, you've been ever so patient in listening to me prattle on about this. So how about this? Let's go ahead and get to that trailer. What do you say? Harry. You're liars. You are despicable little 
gonna be that night. Sergeant Neil Howey travels to the remote Scottish island of Summer Isle to investigate an anonymous tip that 12-year-old Rowan Morrison, as played by Geraldine Cowper, has gone missing, and foul play may be afoot. Howey arrives and is doubly curt and officious in his dealings with the locals, demanding to first be shown around the island by the people that he meets, and quickly pointing out to any and all who will dare to bring it up that he is a devoutly pious Christian of the highest order. He starts his search first by seeking out the mother of the missing girl, but finds himself puzzled that she doesn't appear to be concerned in the least. Good afternoon. Like your rabbits. Those are hares. <laughs> Silly old rabbits. Lovely match hares. Can I help you? Uh, Mrs. Morrison, Mrs. May Morrison? Yes. Sergeant Howie, West Highland Police. Oh, my. Did you come over in that aeroplane that I saw flying round? Ah, that's right. Why? Just to see me? Well, no, no, not exactly. Um, making inquiries about your daughter, we understand that she's missing. Missing? My daughter. Ah, you do have a daughter. Yes. And that's her. Never. (laughs) I tell you no. I think you'd better come with me. Howie is introduced to a daughter who is decidedly not Rowan, and he goes on confused to his lodgings at the island's dual pub and hotel, the Green Man Inn. Howie meets with innkeeper Mr. McGregor, as played by Lindsay Camp, and is equally taken by his beautiful daughter Willow, as played by Britt Eklund, who shows him to his room, but not before Howie is repulsed by the locals singing a bawdy song in regards to Willow herself the landlord's daughter. Howie makes inquiries around town and notes that the island, which is supposed to be known for its bountiful harvest of fresh produce, is offering up tinned vegetables and fruits for its inhabitants to consume. He also takes notice that the latest photo of that year's harvest is seemingly missing from the wall, which people cannot explain. This further angers Howie, who feels the locals are playing him for a fool, and he is determined to get to the bottom of things the next day. The night he stays at the Green Man, Willow, in the next room from Howie, calls out to him, singing a song of seduction, How Do, trying to get the police officer to join her as she dances naked and strikes their shared wall. While Howie is enamored with the beautiful young woman, he refuses her advances and stays true to his intended vows of chastity as he is already engaged to a fiancé on the mainland. In the morning, Howie views a group of schoolchildren singing and dancing around a maypole, and he interrupts a school class being taught by Miss Rose, as played by Diane Salento, 
chastising both her and the children in attendance for both their pagan studies, and later for lying to him about having no knowledge of Rowan as a classmate, even though it's evident that there's an empty desk in the room belonging to her, and that she is on the class roster. Miss Rose informs Sergeant Howie that Rowan isn't there because she has died, and informs him of where he can find her burial plot, leading the investigator to go to the island community's leader, Lord Samurail himself, as played by Christopher Lee, to get permission to exhume the body of the child, certain that he's going to uncover a murdered conspiracy, in part due to how strange he views the behavior of the islanders. As he waits for Samurail to meet with him, Howie is horrified to watch the island's teenagers perform pagan rites in the nude, jumping over a bonfire in celebration, and is even more angered that Samurail seems supportive of it. Good afternoon, Sergeant Howie. I trust the sight of the young people refreshes you. No, sir. It does not refresh me. Oh, I'm sorry. One should always be open to the regenerative influences. I understand you're looking for a missing girl. I found her. Splendid. In her grave. Your lordship is a justice of the peace. I need your permission to exhume her body, have it transported to the mainland for a pathologist's report. You suspect uh, foul play? I suspect murder and conspiracy to murder. In that case, you must go ahead. Your lordship seems strangely unconcerned. I'm confident your suspicions are wrong, Sergeant. We don't commit murder up here. We're a deeply religious people. Religious? With ruined churches. No ministers, no priests. And children dancing naked. They do love their divinity lesson. But they, they are... are naked. Naturally, it's much too dangerous to jump through the fire with your clothes on. What religion can, can, can they possibly be learning? J jumping over bonfires. After the Genesis. What? <laughs> Literally, as Miss Rose would doubtless say in her assiduous way, reproduction without sexual union. Oh, what is all this? I mean, you, you, you've got fake, fake, fake biology, fake religion. Sir, have these children never heard of Jesus? Himself the son of a virgin, impregnated, I believe, by a ghost. Do sit down, Sergeant. Socks are so much better absorbed with the knees bent. Please. Now, those children out there, they're jumping through the flames in the hope that the god of fire will make them fruitful. Really, you can hardly blame them. After all, what girl would not prefer the child of a god to that of some acne-scarred artisan? And, and you, you encourage them in this? Actively. It's most important that each new generation born on summer I'll be made aware that here the old gods aren't dead. And what of the true god? To whose glory churches and monasteries have been built on these islands for generations past. Now, sir, what of him? Well, he's dead. He can't complain. He had his chance, and in modern parlance... Samarail explains that his grandfather was a cutting-edge agronomist who is able to develop techniques and strains of crops that would robustly grow in the harsh climate, 
and he encouraged the locals that it was this belief in the old pagan gods of the Celts that made it all possible. And the subsequent generations of the islanders adopted this view as well. Howie is fully disgusted, and equally appalled to find that there is no body when he goes to exhume Rowan Morrison's grave, just the corpse of a dead rabbit. After confronting Summerisle over what he perceives to be a pack of lies, he promises to get to the bottom of things. Returning to the Green Man Inn, Howie is further upset to find the locals engaging in an outdoor orgy, and he locks himself away for the night. The next day, doing research with the island's librarian, as played by Ingrid Pitt, Howie pieces together that Morrison was the previous year's Queen of the May for a failed harvest, and begins to suspect that she was indeed not really dead, but sequestered away, set up to be sacrificed for this next year's harvest. He at first tries to leave the island, but he finds that his plane has been sabotaged and his radio stolen further enraging the officer. Howie returns to the inn to have a rest, and he overhears McGregor talking to Willow, that they are attempting to incapacitate the officer by placing a lit hand of glory in his room. The supposed fumes will keep him asleep, so he will not try to disturb the ritual. Howie wakes and is disgusted to find a human hand burning in his presence. He then knocks out McGregor and takes the innkeeper's costume to the May Day celebration, which happens to be that of Punch, the traditional fool. After a procession makes its way out to the beach to the head of the cliffs, Lord Summerisle announces that they are all finally ready for their sacrifice, revealing a living Rowan Morrison on the scene. Howie quickly sheds his disguise and attempts to grab the girl trying to save her from what he views as a murderous group of pagans, but he is quickly shocked to see that, as she leads him through a system of caves to an adjoining cliffside bluff, all of the townspeople are gathering there waiting. Rowan runs and embraces Samarile and is praised for playing her part. She was bait to lure an outsider there. Howie is actually going to be their sacrifice, not Rowan a man who fits all of the requirements. He came of his own free will. He represents the power of the king. He's a virgin. And, pointing out both his stolen getup and his own actions on the island, he is indeed a fool. As he is stripped of his clothes, Samarile announces to him that he's going to have an opportunity to be a martyr for his very, very important faith. You do. You can't change the fact that I believe in the life eternal as promised to us by our Lord Jesus Christ. I believe in the life eternal as promised to us by our Lord Jesus Christ. That is good. For believing what you do, we confer upon you a rare gift these days a martyr's death. You will not only have life eternal, but you will sit with the saints among the elect. Come. It is time to keep your appointment with the Wicker Man. Howie is terrified to see on the cliffside that the islanders have constructed a 50-foot Wicker Man, with a caged middle section already containing animals. 
He is to be burned with them to ensure a good harvest in the coming fall. Howie attempts in vain to reason with the crowd, and when that fails, he points to Summer Isle, being the next to be sacrificed when this endeavor fails. Unable to sway them, Howie is loaded into the crude construct, and the structure is all set alight. Howie prays and begs both for salvation and mercy, before cursing his captors and screaming in pain, as the pagan islanders happily dance around the fire, singing, Summer is a Kuminin. As Howie's screams dissipate and end, the roar of the flames rise, and the head of the wicker man falls inward upon itself, revealing a blood-red setting sun. Credits roll. Where do we even begin? This film is, of course, a slow burn. And when you screen it for the right kind of folks, the ending can creep up on them out of nowhere, especially if they're not versed in watching horror films. They find themselves sucked into the story, going along with the musical numbers, or even, in the case of my former roommate, they find themselves angered by them. And that puts them off until the ending hits, where Howie has been proven correct that Rowan is actually alive, only to realize that far too late, none of it actually matters. This was all a setup, a sucker punch, a twist. Personally, Woodward's portrayal of Howie is actually what sells this film for me. He's so wonderful here. He's so uptight and arrogant. He's such an ass. Rigid in his thinking, pious and holier than thou, the horror for me isn't actually what happens to him. He's not a good guy, and he walks smack into a situation that is in part due to his own arrogance and inability to see that he is not in a real position of either moral or societal authority when he arrives on this island. No. For me, the horror comes from watching Howie get to experience essentially all of those stages of grief one can have in the span of about 10 minutes. As he's prepped for sacrifice and he desperately tries to talk his way out. It's his vulnerability here, his utter terror. His first real moments of realizing he's a fellow human being rather than an officer of the law. And that all makes his approaching appointment with a wall of flames feel staggeringly oppressive. And even though one may dislike him, the horror is created here from the empathy one feels about the situation writ large. Now wait! Now all of you, just wait! And listen to me, and you can wrap it up any way you like if you are about to commit murder. Can you not see? There is... There is no sun god. There is no... Goddess of the fields. Your... Your crops failed because your strains failed. Fruit is not meant to be grown on these islands. It eats against nature. Well, don't you see that killing me is not going to bring back your apples? Summer Isle, you know it won't. Well, go on, man. Tell them. Tell them it won't. I know it will. 
Well, don't you understand that if your crops fail this year, next year you're going to have to have another blood sacrifice. And next year, no one less than the king of Summer Isle himself will do. And if the crops fail, Summer Isle, next year your people will kill you on May Day. They will not fail. The sacrifice of the willing king like virgin fool will be accepted. You see, I'll be missed. They'll come looking for me! There will be no traces. Bring him up, Oak. God, no! Think! Just think what you're doing! Think what you're doing! Think! Now, this is just me and something I find interesting, but when I watch this film, one of the things I take away from it, when you're addressing both the characters of Howie and Lord Samarile, the film, although it does end with Howie's death as a sacrifice, has both men being tested with their perspective faiths, and it gives each of them a hard moment of doubt. Howie spends a good portion of this film talking the talk about how he is this devout Christian. But here at the end of all things, in his hour of glorious martyrdom, he starts to crack as he is locked in the giant effigy and it is set alight. His recitation of Psalm 23 gives way to instead cursing his executioners rather than to be in continual prayer to his God. That is, until his screams are drowned out by the roar of flames. Conversely, Lord Samarile, when arguing with Howie, himself has a moment of pause, because Howie throws back at him that if one is going to believe all of this paganism, if these crops are going to fail even after Howie himself is killed, then it will be Samarile who should be sacrificed, as, by the pagan's own logic, it's him that has failed his people with these practices. Lee plays the Lord as a man who is confident, not entirely arrogant, but we get to see here this moment where his face hardens and he looks around, as if the notion has never occurred to him that this human sacrifice could still fail. This is done very subtly, and it's met with anger and even more of Samarile doubling down with the Lord himself leading the group in song, belting out verse after verse as the pyre is lit, as if he can influence the results of the sacrifice through the sheer force of his own volume. It's masterfully acted and fantastically written as a scene. For his part, Lee has been quoted to sum up this film as being not an attack on contemporary religion, but instead a comment on it. Its strengths as well as its weaknesses, its fallibility. The film points out that it can be puritanical and still not always come out on top, which for the day was a different way to address things and thus makes it more of a horror film for those viewers of faith. been disappointed with his role being so drastically reduced after this film was cut, and he had often lamented in interviews that there were other songs he got to sing, and he had other scenes that gave his role even more depth and made him seem even more complex. I mean, clearly, he's this happy and generous man who the islanders all love and respect, not to mention he's so open and liberal in his ways, especially compared to the uptight officer that's investigating this case. 
Lee would go on to comment in later years that, quite simply, this was the most fascinating film of my career. I really believe this to be the best that I've had up until now, and I've had the best performance I've ever given. And the film itself has created an unparalleled impact wherever it's been shown. It's erotic, romantic, exotic, witty, savage, and terrifying. It also contains beautiful music and superb scenery. It has something for everyone and functions on every conceivable level. A unique picture, and thus, my favorite. I would be shirking my duty if I didn't comment on just how beautiful the music in this film is, as well as being very memorable. I mean, when it's used, it's edited to coincide with either shocking or exciting images. For example, Gently Johnny is being sung while Howie disgustedly looks out on a scene of a mass orgy taking place amongst the islanders outside of the Green Man Tavern. Willow's poignant seduction song, How Do, is viscerally striking as she sings it while disrobing, hurling her nude form against the common wall she shares with Officer Howie in an attempt to entice him to join her for the evening. Or, if nothing else, the sheer gaiety of the children and the islanders as they prance around the maypole, singing along to the song Summer Isle. If you do nothing else after hearing this episode, please go do yourself the favor. Listen to its soundtrack. It's magnificent. So I can hear you out there. How was the film received? Well, it's kind of a mixed bag. Critically, The Wicker Man made some waves with critics, drawing praise for its storytelling and its subject matter. The Financial Times critic Nigel Andrews stated that the film goes for a little extra originality and succeeds at least in part in bringing off some surprisingly grand and imaginative moments. It's Schaefer's version of Euripides, and Dionysus is a wild-haired, hedonistic Scottish lord. London Cinema Today called it a thinking person's horror story, one that could become an in-movie for all that are interested in the old customs and those that can accept the logic and horrifying end. Stateside, I will say Variety received it well, commenting that Schaefer's screenplay for sheer imagination and near terror has seldom been equaled. Likewise, Kevin Thomas of the LA Times thought the film was smart, consistently pointing out just how witty the work was. But in this case, no matter how well it was liked, one fact remained. The people did not come out in droves to see it. Now, I can't speak for the confusion that possibly went on in the UK, but the United States release was a separate mess all of its own. The film was supposed to be handled for distribution by a studio in the U.S., but what happened was it was partnered first with National General Pictures, who themselves were undergoing some financial difficulties and found themselves being restructured. They would end up being bought out by Warner Brothers, who fulfilled the contractual obligations of screening The Wicker Man, but they did so by dumping it in two smaller markets with very little fanfare. So Wicker Man got seen by the people of San Diego, California, and some folks in Atlanta, Georgia. 
Again, without having a proper marketing campaign or a national release, it was very hard to drum up excitement for a film that was supposed to be a horror movie, but was in fact a musical. And it wasn't comparable to any other film in that genre back in the day. The box office returns for those limited releases were slim to none. And the film was frankly slated to be forgotten just as quickly as it came. That is, for about four years. 1977. The magazine Cinefantastique did a retrospective issue where it highlighted The Wicker Man. And in an article, it was called The Citizen Kane of Horror Films. And it went on to interview star Christopher Lee and director Robin Hardy. In a new appreciation, this got renewed interest in the film. And being that it only had a limited release outside of the United Kingdom, Buzz began anew to see the film with fresh eyes. Hardy himself ended up securing a copy of the film that had been previously given to Roger Corman to view. And that copy over the years had made its way first from Warner Brothers' hands to a smaller company that was known as Abraxas Films. Hardy was able to use the print that he got from Abraxas to create a new cut, and this was a longer 96-minute version of the film that would get released again to theaters in 1979, which allowed more people to see it, and it further elevated its cult status. Now, as the years rolled on, newer cuts of the film would continually get released, but various write-ups on the film would all comment about how poorly the original had been stripped down. The story floated that it was edited so much that now a story that took place over the course of several days was cut to just being a single. This is blatantly false, and even in the original release of the most cut-down version that was put out by EMI, this film still takes place over a period of two and a half days, and this can be proven by simply sitting down and watching the movie. A director's cut would eventually be made different from Hardy's 1979 version, and in the initial release that would be put out on video and DVD in 2001. This was a 99 minute version of the film and it has some newly restored scenes, and it was considered by Hardy to be the closest that he was able to replicate getting to his original submitted print back in the day. In the documentary, The Wicker Man Enigma, which is included on the 2001 DVD release, Christopher Lee goes on record and opines that the film's original negative was lost to the ages, citing comments first made by British film director Alex Cox that they were seemingly destroyed and used as filler for the M4 motorway. But Lee himself remained hopeful that the print does exist out there somewhere, perhaps lost in the world, sitting in unmarked cans, waiting to be discovered by someone so that it can be recut and re-edited, and thus it would include more of his scenes of singing and of his character's manipulation. Truth be told, based on what I've seen and what I've read, I would not wish to tell people not to be hopeful, but honestly, I don't think there's some sort of secret lost print floating around out there. Companies undergoing such changes and buyouts would often throw away their excised film negatives and footage, and this situation seemed to be no exception. 
I'm not saying Lee didn't film all that, nor that Hardy didn't make it happen. I just don't think any of it is going to exist anywhere in any sort of final film cut. The film itself, I feel, was destroyed over time. And yes, it's a total tragedy. Now, the film would get recut and re-released in theaters one more time. In 2013, when Hardy got ready to promote The Wicker Man Final Cut, which would show up on a big screen version and later would be released on Blu-ray. And this time around, you had 40 years of time and changed attitudes towards this film. The Wicker Man at this point was a genuine cult classic. Critics were hip to point out just how strong the film remained when they see it, how powerful the story was. Rotten Tomatoes, at least as of this recording, currently holds the film at 89% with critics and 82% with audience members. That is a solid rating for a film that seemingly was squashed upon its initial release. But the movie still absolutely has a legacy of its own. Schaefer, in the late 1980s, wrote a proposed sequel for the film, wherein Sergeant Howie was rescued from sacrifice at the hands of the Samurai pagans, and ends up having to go on to battle their magical ways further. He ends up confronting a dragon in the process? Ugh, thankfully, that was never made, because, at least to me, that sounds awful. Happy to say that music from The Wicker Man has been covered by various artists to date. Some of these renditions are actually favorites of mine. This again was all pointed out to me by Xerxes, by the way. I was never hip enough to know any of this. But back in the late 90s, the marvelous shoegaze trip-hop artist The Sneaker Pimps, they recorded wonderful versions of both How Do and Gently Johnny. Their version is simply titled Johnny as cuts and b-sides for their seminal album Becoming X from 1996. Isabel Campbell, formerly of the Scottish band Bell and Sebastian, she released her own amazing cover of Willow's Song on 2006 album The Milk White Sheets, and it's equally spectacular. Or, hey, if you're a person who enjoys old Middle English poems and folk songs that are featured somewhat here, the marvelous power group The Medieval Babes covers the songs Samurail on their fantastic 2000 album Undrentide. All of these show that the music has left their mark, and what's more, people should go out and listen to all of it. It's amazing. Now, a remake of The Wicker Man was made in 2006 by director Neil Labute, which ended up starring Nicolas Cage and Ellen Bernstein. And in my mind, it borders on being a travesty. The plot swaps out the battling ideologies of both religion and order, and instead it decides to bring in a dated and misplaced battle of the sexes. It's an island of strong women who view men as drones, and shockingly, they're attempting to resurrect their beekeeping enterprise to get their honey production back on course. It's not at all good, and while I of course would strongly advocate for bad films to be watched and enjoyed, which at this point could possibly constitute about 75% of what is now Nicolas Cage's oeuvre, it's in a class of its own as to how much it lets down viewers at almost every turn, especially when they haven't seen the original, or can they understand then how badly they're being cinematically robbed when they view it. A long-delayed sequel was eventually made, though, to The Wicker Man, coming out 
as The Wicker Tree in 2011, which was both written and directed by Robin Hardy. While not considered to be a direct sequel to the original film, instead it has that marvelous catch-all of spiritual sequel. My answer to that is most likely because actor Christopher Lee was ill during production, and his part eventually had to be scaled back, with Lee coming on board as a cameo to play a nameless older character. I have to say though, in watching it, all signs point to the fact that he is indeed a very aged Lord Samurail himself. Lee would go on to dispute this, but trust me, it's him. This was all made from the novel Cowboys for Christ, which Hardy wrote, which is an updated take on two born-again American missionaries coming to a remote part of Scotland to proselytize, and finding that they're getting themselves into a situation where they're being groomed for pagan sacrifice. Is it the worst thing we've ever seen? No. But it is a pale imitation of the original, and for my money, I would tell viewers you're better off sticking with just watching The Wicker Man and leaving it at that. That said, without the movie The Wicker Man, I don't think we would get great films like 2019's Midsummer. So to me, it's just one more reason to be thankful to both Christopher Lee, to Anthony Schaefer, and to Robin Hardy for getting this marvelous piece of cinema made. version of The Wicker Man screened here at the LSCE was the 2001 Anchor Bay release that came with some rather decent features. It contained the original recipe 88-minute cut of the film, which comes to you with some trailers, TV spots, radio ads, interactive biographies, as well as the full documentary The Wicker Man Enigma. That version of the film, I believe, has now since gone out of print, but one can still find the DVD that has those features being sold on Amazon for the exorbitant price of $6.69. Or, if you're feeling saucy and you'd like to get the 2014 final cut released by Robin Hardy, you can get it on Blu-ray for $13.34, which I would argue is well worth your time and hard-earned cash to have such a marvelous film in your collection. Now, remember folks, we don't get anything here at the LSCE for telling you where to buy your films. We just think it's important in this day and age that people keep purchasing physical media, so that the right holders of these properties have reason to keep releasing the content that we all know and love for our consumption. And really, at the end of the day, isn't that what this is all about? Isn't it what you want? More of what you love? Besides, this is yet another fantastic movie that stars Christopher Lee and that he is excellent in. Plus, it's an amazing horror musical offering that's interesting both as a cultural touchstone and a film that can be shared with others. So what are you waiting for? Get out there. Get yourself a copy of The Wicker Man today. So that's going to wrap things up here for this episode of I Saw It on Linden Street. Thank you so much for joining us. Hope to have you back again soon. Have you been wondering what it would be like to hear old Chris sit down with two lovely ladies and chat about an obscure cult film? One about a haughty warlock who lives in a storm drain? Well, last week I had the honor of being a guest on the hilarious and fun Bedknobs and Broom Flicks, sitting down with Linda and Jane to discuss 1971's cult classic, Simon, King of the Witches. 
we laughed a lot, we got a bit raunchy, and we covered a rather strange film. So look for that out there now, wherever you're listening to your podcasts on, and please absolutely give those fine ladies a listen to in their own right. Again, help support our friends. If you like what we're doing here, and that would be the LSCE Dachshunds and myself, please give us a favorable review on Apple Podcasts, hit that subscribe button, or hey, just do that wherever you're listening to us on. Swing by, check out our website, lscep.com, where we have articles, episode links, and comics for you to peruse. I'm proud to announce that we've recently been added to Amazon Music, so if you have an account, simply say, Hey Alexa, play I Saw It on Linden Street today. We're also featured on Podchaser. That's a podcast database for listeners and creators alike. Find us there. Give us a follow and a review if you could, please. And hey, feel free to like any of the lists that we're a part of to give us a boost in those rankings. The more reviews and the increased likes, that affects those marvelous algorithms out there, and it makes us more searchable. And then we can share movies with more people. And you want to do that, don't you? Of course you do. As always, if you'd like to get in touch with us, make a comment, ask a question, send us wonderful things, please email us at lindenstreetcinemaexperience at gmail.com. If you'd like to be even more personable, or you wish to contribute a segment to the sidecar, please send an audio message by way of Anchor. That's a free and easy app to use. So, until next time, please take care out there, wash your hands, wear a mask, stay healthy, and remember, life's too short not to live in the past. Take it easy out there, everybody. And now, folks, it's time to say goodnight. We sincerely appreciate your patronage and hope we've succeeded in bringing you an enjoyable evening of entertainment. Please drive home carefully and come back again soon. Good night.